Uh, hello and welcome. My name is Professor Verna Caldera. I teach in sociology at the University of Warwick uh, in the United Kingdom and I'm honored to be chairing this series of talks that look at the relationship between India and Israel, Hindutva and Zionism. This series is sponsored by the Institute of Palestine Studies and is the outcome of a number of discussions between activists and academics from South Asia and the Arab world. Today is the first of a series of talks uh, that examines the relationship between Hindutva and Zionism, the Unholy Alliance. And the next will feature Professor Atazia, who will consider the Israelification of Kashmir, followed by well-known political commentator and activist, activist Tariq Ali, who will talk about the geopolitical implications of the Israeli-India relationship. We're also hoping uh, to have future talks on the cultural relationships between Israel and India and on the very dramatically developing military links between both countries. Our aim for today was to broadcast in multiple languages, but given resource limitations, this has not been possible in, in the live event. But we hope that an accompanying Arabic text will be available when this talk is put on the Institute of Palestine Studies social media channels, as well as in other languages. The rationale behind these talks is the dramatic shift in relations that has taken place between India and Israel in recent times. Um, from my own personal example, my father migrated to England in 1962, and his Indian passport restricted travel to two countries, South Africa and Israel, which showed the Indian state's commitment at that time to the unfinished business of liberation from colonial rule. 60 years later, and we're in a situation where India is the top buyer of Israeli weapons and arms, which are developed through the continuing brutal occupation of Palestinian land and decimation of Palestinian people. Some people might say that, uh, how is it possible to talk about India and Israel, where India is a country of 1.38 billion people with 22 recognized separate languages, and where the largest religious minority, that of Muslims, consists of 200 million people. Uh, that is twice the population of Egypt. But when it comes to looking at Israel-India relations, the connections are ideological, which we're gonna hear a lot more about in today's lecture, and due to the desire of the right-wing government of India to become a partner of the USA. To help us explore and understand why are we in this dire situation, I want to introduce our first speaker of this series, Dr. Amrit Wilson. Uh, Amrit is a, an inspiration to myself and to many other people uh, in Britain. She's a founder member of South Asia Solidarity Group, which for more than two decades in Britain has been at the forefront of organizing international solidarity for the people's movement, fighting Hindu supremacy and fascism in India. She's a writer on issues of race and gender in Britain and on the strategies of imperialism and anti-imperialist resistance. Her books include Finding a Voice, Asian Women in Britain, which won the Martin Luther King Award and has been republished in an extended form by Daraja Books in 2018. She's also uh, authored the threat, the threat of Liberation, Imperialism and Revolution in Zanzibar, and US Foreign Policy and Revolution, the Creation of Tanzania. Uh, Amrit is, I think, the most 
important person or the most significant person in relationship to addressing this question of the relate of Hindutva and Zionism because of her activism and of course because of her intellectual strength. Um, she'll speak to us for about 45 minutes which will be followed by a question and answer session. Please put your questions in the chat box as we are going to be following uh, a webinar format. So the, the opportunity at the end, we'll, we will have an opportunity at the end to then uh, go through those questions. So I'm going to hand over to Amrit. Thank you so much, Verinda, and thank you to the um, Institute for Palestine Studies. I'm really honored to be speaking at this series of lectures. So I'd like to start by honoring the memory of Shireen Abu Akleh. Her cold-blooded murder and the aftermath the attack on the mourners who were carrying her coffin, which we've all seen on screen, is something I can never forget. It will remain indelible in my mind. Joining other images of attacks which have happened closer to home. In Kashmir, where funerals have been attacked and mourners killed, and one funeral has led to several others. But Kashmir is not my subject here. Although Kashmir plays a very important symbolic role, which I will touch on later. My subject is Zionism, the ideology of the Israeli apartheid state, and Hindutva, the ideology which drives the Hindu supremacist fascistic BJP regime in India, which aims to transform India into a Hindu state. Hindutva will be my main focus today. I will explore its similarities with Zionism and the links and increasing alliances between the two. And because I'm based in Britain, I'm going to end this lecture by looking at what's happening here in the context of Hindutva and Zionism. Looking at what is happening in India and thinking about Israel right now, what comes to mind is Masafariyata, where eight Palestinian villages are being destroyed and more than 1,500 Palestinians dispossessed. Ethnic cleansing is the basis of the Israeli state. It's the blueprint said by the Nakba of 1948. Today, India is facing a similar ethnic cleansing and it's on the brink of a genocide of its of his, of his Muslim population. As we know from the Palestinian experience, ethnic cleansing and genocide are processes. And in India, the first steps have already been taken. A citizenship legislation, that is Citizenship Amendment Act has already been passed to potentially strip Muslims of citizenship and expel them from India. Other laws which have been likened to the Nuremberg laws prevent marriages between Muslims and Hindus, the majority population. There's a violent economic boycott of Muslims in place. Muslim women and girls in hijab are being barred from entering colleges and being hounded on the street by Hindu supremacist mobs. Lynchings by killer gangs sponsored by the state are frequent, almost everyday occurrences. Mosques are being demolished and set on fire. And there are open calls by supposedly holy men linked to the BJP, the ruling party, for the genocide of Muslims. Experts on genocide, including those who predicted the Rwanda genocide, are warning of the impending genocide of Muslims in India. The eviction of Muslims from their homes has been going on since last year. More recently, bulldozers have been brought into action. Hindu festivals have become occasions for Hindu supremacist mobs 
of young men drunk on hate to march through Muslim areas. They brandished lethal weapons, taunted the residents, broadcast Islamophobic songs on loudspeakers, and more often than not, mosques are desecrated. The state then declares that homes and property in the area are illegal encroachments and sends in the bulldozers. They come backed by the police who attack and sexually assault Muslim men, women, and children. Police officers in the state of Madhya Pradesh in Central India, for example, were shouting, hit them on their privates. The scenes of the Muslim community trying desperately to save their meager belongings is captured and amplified by television cameras, by media persons thirsty for more hate and more violence. And those who are made homeless are often destitute and they're dealt with with further brutality. We've seen the demolition of Palestinian homes, often by the same make of yellow JCB bulldozers. We know that for many Palestinians, the bulldozer has become a symbol of Israeli occupation. In India, it is increasingly the dominant image of the BJP, India's ruling party. Also in an echo with Israel, the Indian regime makes false claims about high population growth among Muslims. Hate speech and vicious threats against Muslim women are rife. In February, a Hindu supremacist woman leader called for the mass enslaving and rape of Muslim women to force them to breed for Hindus. The PM, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, endorses all this with his silence. We must remember that he's a man who presided over genocidal attacks on Muslims in the state of Gujarat in Western India in 2002. Attacks in which some 22,000 Muslims were murdered and 200,000 displaced. This is something which the world has forgotten. In Gujarat, women and, and girls were specifically targeted. Feminist historian Tanika Sarkar wrote at the time, more important than the statistics of loss was the nature of terror. What is new about Gujarat, she noted, can best be exemplified in what happened to Muslim women and girls on the day of the long knives. Not just their killings, not just the sadism that affected their killings, but the larger symbolic purpose behind the deaths, which sums up the nature of ethnic cleansing, the shape of Hindu Rashtra, Hindu state. The pattern of cruelty, she wrote, suggested three things. One, that a woman's body was a site of almost inexhaustible violence, with infinitely plural and innovative forms of torture, Second, their sexual and reproductive organs were attacked with a special savagery. Third, their children born and unborn shared the attacks and were killed before their eyes. The Gujarat violence had been, was carefully planned months in advance. On the one hand, there was a carnival atmosphere. On the other, as Human Rights Watch re reported, the attackers descended and I'm using their words, the attackers descended with militia-like precision in their thousands, arriving in trucks, chanting slogans of incitement to kill, and armed with swords, trishuls, which are three-pronged spears, sophisticated explosives, and gas cylinders. 
They were guided by print, computer printouts, just like the Nazis, with addresses of Muslim families and their properties obtained from the Ahmedabad Municipal Corporation and other official sources. The police acted in concert with murderous mobs, burning and looting Muslim shops and homes, and killing and mutilating Muslims. Muslims who called the police or ambulance service were told, we, are not, we have no orders to save you. The bodies of those killed had been buried in mass grave sites. Most bodies had arrived burned and butchered beyond recognition. In some cases, pregnant women had their bellies cut open and their fetuses pulled out and hacked or burned before the women were killed. Soon after, Modi was banned from Britain and the US. But of course, things changed totally after he became prime minister in 2014. Now he's fated and celebrated by the British and American governments. And back home in India, there have been similar pogroms across the country against Christians in Odisha state in 2008, against Muslims in Uttar Pradesh state in 2013, and in Delhi in 2020. Hindutva leaders had called the Gujarat genocide the laboratory of Hindutva. We fear that they now want to repeat the experiment across India as a whole. So why is all this happening in India? What is the history it grew out of? What are the deeper similarities between the two fascistic ideologies of Hindutva and Zionism? In the case of Palestine, it was the British who were responsible for handing over Palestine land to create the state of Israel. In India too, it was the British who after India's first war of independence in 1857, nurtured hostility between Hindus and Muslims. The 1857 war was dubbed the mutiny by British historians and is still described as such in British history books. But it was a major war which lasted two and a half years. And because Hindus and Muslims had united and fought the colonizers, it led the British to desperately fear Hindu and Muslim unity. The war was followed by brutal repression and British historians got to work reframing Indian history as a continuous conflict between Hindus and Muslims. At the same time, they put in place blatant divide and rule policies and encouraged the formation of right-wing Hindu and Muslim parties, which were ultimately responsible for the partition of what was once India into two countries, India and Pakistan. What's interesting is that chief among these far-right Hindu parties, which were encouraged by the British, was the RSS, the parent organization of India's ruling party, the BJP. It was established in 1925 in direct opposition to the anti-colonial movement. Like the British, it has always seen Muslims, not the British, as the main enemy. It was and continues to be an authoritarian, militaristic, cadre-based organization, which is modeled on Mussolini's black shirts and inspired by the Nazis. It sees Hitler's treatment of Jews as a model of race pride. And according to one of his most important ideologues, M.S. Goldwalker, Muslims 
may stay in the country wholly subordinated to the Hindu nation, claiming nothing, deserving no privileges, far less preferential treatment, not even citizens' rights. Another revered icon of the Hindu right was V.D. Savarkar, who invented the term Hindutva and was the first to call for the partition of India. He wrote that the rape of Muslim women is justifiable and not to do so when the occasion permits is not virtuous or chivalrous, but cowardly. Now Hindutva, as we must remember, is the ideology of the BJP. It's nothing to do with the religion, Hinduism. It's important to remember that the RSS is not only anti-Muslim, it's also deeply and inherently Brahminical, and as such against Dalits, the so-called untouchables. You know, India has a caste system on which, which is graded, and the Dalits are the lowest, actually outcasts. And, and so basically, the RSS is Brahminical. The Brahmins are the priests at the top, right? It's also, the RSS is also viciously misogynistic and anti-Christian. Just as the Stern Gang and Irgun shaped the Israeli state, the RSS has penetrated much of the Indian state from the judiciary to the police, to the media and education system, including many universities, though here the resistance is still very strong. It's also the controlling parent of scores of Hindu supremacist organizations, which together are called the Sangh Parivar or the family of Hindu fascist organizations. This sinister family includes killer gangs like the Bajrangal. When, um, and violent student organizations, women's organizations, cow vigilantes who attack and kill those they suspect of eating beef or slaughtering cows. And of course, the RSS is also the parent of the BJP, India's ruling political party. Narendra Modi and most other top BJP leaders are lifelong members of the RSS. Like the Zionists, Hindutva has spread its tentacles across the world with overseas branches of the RSS in Australia, the Americas, Britain, and South and East African countries. Central to Hindutva is a rewriting of history. Like Israel's claim to Palestinian land, it portrays the myths that Hindus are the original claimants to the land of India. Like the Zionists, it's always discovering so-called evidence to further its claims. This evidence could be ancient Islamic buildings and shrines suddenly dubbed as of Hindu origin, old riverbeds where mythological rivers once flowed, and supposedly ancient artifacts. It claims that all Hindus are Aryans. And typical of fascism, it portrays Hindus as one race, one religion, and one culture. In fact, nothing can be further from reality. Hindus are an amorphous lot, speaking a host of different languages and worshiping a variety of deities with a broad, within a broad Hindu pantheon. Not only does Hinduism exist in syncretic forms, adopting non-Hindu practices, but it has no Hindu holy book, 
like the Bible or Quran. Therefore, no strict rules which must be followed. There are clear similarities and also strong links between Hindutva and white supremacy, which go back many decades. More recently, Anders Breivik, who carried out the July 2011 massacre, killing 77 young people in a summer camp in Norway, was strongly influenced by Hindutva. And Hindutva has links with the alt-right in America. Trump was beloved not only by Modi, but by scores of Hindutva activists. And the Indian flag was clearly visible at the siege of the Capitol building in January 2021. Despite its so-called nationalism, the RSS is in reality deeply colonial. Even this notion of Hinduism is based on the British rulers' scriptural understandings of the religion, which in turn was based specifically on the elite Brahminical and patriarchal interpretations of Hindus. The RSS has tried to draw Dalits and other oppressed caste people into their embrace, but of course is deeply invested in the maintenance of caste hierarchy and in, in violence against Dalits. Rapes and murders of Dalit women and girls by so-called upper caste men go unpunished. And while the atrocities against Dalits have been going on long before the BJP appeared on the scene, things have got far worse since it came to power. Hinduka claims that Aryans lived in India from time immemorial in an area called Akhan Bharat or undivided India. Akhan Bharat includes Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, Tibet, Sri Lanka, Maldives, and Myanmar. And Hindutva's ultimate aim is to recapture these countries. At the heart of this region lies Kashmir. And as Kashmiri filmmaker Sanjay Kak writes, increasingly Hindutva activists are claiming that all of India's greatness is tied in with Kashmir, where everything flourished in ancient times, its scholarship, its science and med medicine, its theater, grammar, and literature. So you can see in the picture, Akan Bharat, which actually seems to have grown to include even Malaysia and Thailand and Cambodia and Vietnam. And standing in front of it is Mohan Bhagwat, the chief of the RSS. So like Israel, Akan Bharat has no borders. Hindutva also maintains that all groups in India, other than Hindus, are invaders and non-Indians. But in apparent contradiction, it also claims that every group of people who lives in India were once Hindus and have been forcibly converted. It harks back to a mythical golden age when, for example, whole head transplants were performed, aircrafts flew linking cities, and of course, that Hindus were the, are the descendants of these great people and therefore grade themselves. The golden age thus provides both nostalgia and the stuff of cultural renaissance. To claim their greatness, Hindutva erases or distorts the non-Hindu past. It denigrates the Mughal emperors who ruled over much of India for more than 300 years and built India into one of the most prosperous countries in the world. The Mughals profoundly affected India's food, languages, architecture, and systems of administration, 
creating a uniquely Indian syncretic culture. Today, they are dubbed not only aggressive, uncultured, and cruel, but as invaders and rapists. Well-known Mughal monuments are claimed to have been built by Hindus in the Golden Age. Or as an echo with Al-Aqsa are targets for demolition because the BJP claims they are built over the ruins of a temple. In the Taj Mahal, a symbol of love built by the Emperor Shah Jahan as a mausoleum for his beloved wife, Mumtaz Mahal, is now being dubbed Tejo Mahalaya, a Hindu temple. This is no joke. The BJP is ready to act on it. There was a court case demanding that rooms within the mausoleum be opened up to look for Hindu idols. And although it has been rejected by the High Court for now, it's likely to surface it. Shivlings, which are stones shaped like a phallus, supposedly, supposedly belonging, to, belonging to the god Shiva, are increasingly being discovered in all kinds of places. Even in San Francisco, where Modi supporters began to pray to a traffic bollard, which had been placed in a park because they thought it looked like Shiva's phallus. But while this is ludicrous, in India, the fascists can suspend disbelief in their attacks on Islamic buildings, particularly mosques. Most recently, the fountain in a 17th century mosque, the Gyanbapi Mosque, is being targeted. A fountain in its courtyard, it is claimed, is a shivling, and as such, a holy place for Hindus. The aim here also is a mass demolition campaign. The state-controlled mass media and the hyperactive social media warriors of the Hindutva ecosystem are used to spread these absurd ideas, along with fake news and hate speech all across the country. So there are WhatsApp messages about so-called Corona Jihad, blaming Muslims for spreading COVID, Job Jihad for stealing Hindu jobs, and Love Jihad, which claims that Muslim men coerce Hindu women into marriages, only to convert them to Islam. Every villager has a mobile phone and is therefore a target for these WhatsApp messages. And often these messages are the only information about current affairs, which reach India's vast rural areas and small towns. Muslims and Christians are portrayed as enemies over the centuries and now. Fear and a powerful victim mentality is instilled and with it the desire for violent revenge. In many cases, this taps into and vastly amplifies an already existing anti-Muslim mindset caused by the memories of violence at partition of India. The online Hindu ecosystem is directly linked to the RSS and BJP, but a dark, it also has a dark underbelly of groups for whom the RSS and BJP are not right-wing or violent enough, and, that, and they're not serious enough about pursuing a Hindu state. Their role is effectively to push the narrative further to the right, and they're treated with kid gloves by the state. They project a, fa a fascistic hyper-masculinity. They draw inspiration from the American alt-right and are also strikingly similar to the Zionists in their fantasies about Muslim women, fetishizing them as sexual objects and 
inflicting unspeakable violence on them. These groups have subjected Muslim women, particularly outspoken Muslim women, journalists, politicians, and others, to mock online auctions. And their photos and links on their social media accounts have been posted for virtual sale. We might think that with its attempts to create a false cultural renaissance and its apparent rejection of science, Hindutva and the BJP are medieval in approach. But this is not the case. The BJP is actually a modern phenomenon. While its parent organization, the RSS, was set up in 1925, the BJP only came to prominence in 1992, when hundreds of Hindutva activists supervised by top BJP leaders, demolished the Babri Masjid, an iconic 500-year mosque. The claim was that there was a temple under it. But it's significant that as a political party, the BJP only rose to power when it reshaped itself to fit in with neoliberal policies, which India had adopted in the mid-1980s. It embedded its violence against Muslims, Christians, and Dalits into a new neoliberal model of development. This model was tried out first in the state of Gujarat, where Modi became chief minister in 2001. Huge swathes of land were converted into special economic zones and handed over to multinational companies, Indian and foreign, for a pittance. But high levels of growth were accompanied by some of the highest levels of food poverty, farmer suicides, child malnutrition, and the virtual elimination of labor rights. The other phase of this new development was, of course, the Gujarat genocide of 2002. But Modi's corporate friends were not bothered. They hailed Modi as a hero and began to return his favors, many of them going out of their way to support the Hindutva project. The corporates have since then steadily financed Modi both personally as well as the BJP. In addition, they specifically support Hindutva. For example, in 2014, the year Modi came to power, Jaguar, Dunlop, Jindal, and many other multinational companies sponsored a World Hindu Congress where a pamphlet was distributed listing the five enemies of Hindu society five fingers in the so-called claw of the demon Mahasur. Among them were Marxists, the thumb of the demon's claw, which has given birth to multiple bastard offspring, like communists, socialists, liberals, Maoists, anarchists, and all other forms of leftists. And of course, Muslims, who are described as the poisonous fruit of Islam. In the late 80s, India embraced neoliberalism, and its relationship with Israel also underwent a profound change. In the early years after independence, India was totally committed to freedom for Palestine. Indian freedom fighters visited Palestine and pledged their solidarity with the struggle. Gandhi famously declared that Palestine belongs to the Arabs as England belonged to the English or France to the French. And, um, you know, they issued a postage stamp um, in solidarity with um, Palestine, and Nehru visited Gaza in 1960. 
things began to change slowly at first and then very quickly as India implemented neoliberal policies. Full relations were established in 1992 under a Congress government, but things really got going when the BJP came to power in a coalition government from 1998 to 2004. At this time, Israel supplied arms, including laser-guided missiles during the Indo-Pakistan war in Kargil in 1999. This was followed by a series of Indian ministerial visits to Israel. In 2017, Modi visited Israel, the first Indian prime minister to do so. A large number of MOUs were signed, including weapons deals, including the Pegasus surveillance system. To be brief, as Varinda has also mentioned, India is Israel's largest purchaser of weapons, accounting for nearly 50% of Israel's arms sales. Joint ventures have been set up between the notorious Adani Group and Elbit. And in addition to all this, India imports agricultural technology and many parts of India, like Pushkar in Rajasthan and Rishikesh in Uttarakhand, are effectively places for rest and recreation for Israeli soldiers. And they are pretty racist against Indians. In August 2014, after the horrific attacks on Gaza, India saw one of the world's largest demonstrations in support of Israel. More than 2,000 marched in Kolkata and West Bengal. And 2,000 is actually not that much for an Indian demonstration, but still. And the demonstrations seen here in the picture are in the signature Hindutva colors. Um, and they look definitely as though they're from outside West Bengal, because West Bengal has always been and remains anti-BJP and pro-Palestinian. More recently, the Bollywood film industry is increasingly being used to cement the India-Israel relationship and fight the cultural boycott of Israel's ent entertainment business. In 2018, when Netanyahu visited India, the government organized an event called Shalom Bollywood, where he would meet leading Bollywood personalities and sell India as an ideal partner for Bollywood. And the very next year, we find Bollywood starts visiting Israel. There's now an Indian TV series, POW, Bandi Yudke, which replicates the Israeli series Hatufin, about two Israeli soldiers returning to Israel after being captured in Lebanon and co-productions are in the making. More recently, Israel's Independence Day was celebrated in India. As Azad Essa writes, Narendra Modi sent a special message to Israel and Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. He, and Naftali Bennett replied, Israel greatly cherishes his friendship with India. Together, we have the power to do a lot of good in this world. There were celebratory parties across India marking the occasion. An Israeli actor musician, Sahi Halevi, who is famous for his role in Fauda, a television show which demonizes Palestinians and has recently been praising the Kashmir Files, a film which similarly demonizes Kashmiri Muslims, traveled to India for his, this so-called Israeli Independence Day. He performed a cover of the Indian hit song, Tere Jaise Yaar Kaha. This is not all, as Elsa continues. In Mumbai, the Israeli consulate launched an advertising campaign 
on a local bus service, showcasing India-Israel cooperation in the fields of agriculture and water. Launching the campaign, um, Kobe Shoshani, Israel's Consul General to the Midwest India, the only man in, this, in a suit in this picture, which you're going to see here, was seen rubbing shoulders with commuters. His staff handed out hampers to the bus drivers and other commuters. Neoliberalism has expanded both um, Zionist and Hindutva ideology, with the India, Indian government trying to emulate Israel. There are many examples of this, but I will focus on just one. The notion of the startup nation. In Israel, neoliberal policies, and particularly this, the success of startups, have, as Joseph Gedzoff writes, created the notion of an entrepreneurial Israeli citizen subject whose unique cultural attribute derived from the compulsory military service and a Zionist past sanitized of conflict with the Palestinians. Invisibilizing economic development from the long processes of settler colonial expropriation of Palestinian assets and land. This aspect of neoliberal Zionist ideology represents Israel as in competition with other nation states around it, who failed to exhibit Arab states, in other words, who failed to exhibit what Shimon Peres has called the unique cultural cocktail of Israeli society, and therefore lack an entrepreneurial culture. In India, Modi echoes this approach declaring 16 January this year as a national startup day and sending a clear nationalist message. Let's innovate for India, innovate from India. There are, he says, some 60,000 startups in India with 100 unicorns. Unicorns are companies worth $1 billion. Not surprisingly, oppressed caste people and Muslims have mostly been left out of Modi's startup revolution. The Muslim leadership and Muslim communities are being blamed for not rushing to innovate. The implication is that they lack the unique entrepreneurial culture possessed by upper caste Hindus. But the reality is discrimination and poverty faced by the Muslims. One in three Muslims in India live below the poverty line. And India is very far from being a startup success. Nine out of 10 startups in India actually fail. Most of those who set up startups are unemployed or low wage. They turn to startups in desperation, thinking of them as an alternative source of money, but not really from a desire to innovate. Modi's bombast about the economy is a facade behind which stands India's stark reality, which is entirely different from Israel's. Unlike Israel, India is a huge and extremely poor country which suffered 200 years of colonial plunder. Whatever economic progress was made after independence in 1947 has been wiped out under eight years of BJP rule. In the Global Hunger Index, India has gone from 55 out of 101, um, from, gone from 55 to 101 out of 116 countries. So it's worse than Rwanda or Sudan. And unemployment has skyrocketed. Meanwhile, the number of billionaires has almost tripled since BJP came to power. Big infrastructure projects define Modi's model of development, 
And these projects are being grabbed by his friends and the corporate friends, Adani and Ambani. At the same time, the government continues to sell off public sector assets, built over decades with people's money at a pittance. What happens to the people simply does not matter to Hindu fascists as long as they retain power and continue on their path to turning India into a Hindu state. Perhaps the most telling statistic is that about the pandemic. 4.75 million people lost their lives in India and vaccines were not accessible to the majority of the population. In Israel, as we know, for the Jewish population, it was a very different story. People are suffering in India as never before, and massive protests and people's movements have been rocking the country. Examples are the historic farmers' protests against the takeover of agriculture by Adani and Ambani, the intense and continuing mass resistance by indigenous people in the central belt of India, fighting mining companies, which are attempting to take over the land, and the iconic occupations of public space by Muslim women in Delhi Shaheen Bagh in protest against fascistic citizenship law, which became a blueprint for struggles in the country as a whole. There are thousands of political prisoners, students, dissenters, and ordinary citizens charged under draconian anti-terrorism laws whose only crime has been peaceful protest. Even what is increasingly being called the bulldozer Raj has been successfully confronted once by the Muslim community themselves in Shaheen Bagh by pouring out on the street to block the bulldozers and on another occasion by left activists standing as a wall of resistance between the people and the bulldozers. The left in India, particularly the non-mainstream left, are also under attack from the Modi regime, and they're centrally involved in many of the struggles against it. These incidents and mass protests and movements are rarely reported by the mainstream media. And like Israel, India retains its image in the West as a peace-loving democracy. Pushing this image of India are the Hindutva activists in the diaspora in the US, Canada, and Britain, and Britain and Australia. They've succeeded in positioning themselves in ruling parties as well as main opposition parties. In the US, universities have been a focus. Last year, they targeted an academic conference critiquing Hindutva. Participants were sent death threats. One speaker, the poet Meena Kandasamy, had pictures of her children posted online with captions such as, your son will face a painful death. I'm based mainly in the UK and South Asia Solidarity Group, the organization I belong to is based in the UK too. So I'd like to just say a little bit about what's happening in Britain. Here in the UK, Hindutva activists have penetrated the Indian diasporic communities, particularly Gujarati Hindus who migrated to the UK via East Africa. They've set up or taken over a host of organizations from yoga centers to NGOs to charities like Seva International, that's what it's called, the big charity, which has siphoned millions of pounds ostensibly for humanitarian causes to the BJP. And in 2002, it directly sent money to the killer gangs of the RSS in Gujarat. The National Council of Hindu Temples or the NCHT is controlled by the overseas branch of the RSS, 
and almost every Hindu temple in the UK comes under this umbrella. This includes ISKCON, which is better known as the Hare Krishnas, which, you know, the people who distribute free vegetarian food, I don't know if they do that in Israel. <clears throat> like the Zionists, the Hindutva activists create vote banks <coughs> to influence government policies through key members of parliament, like the Labour Party's Barry Gardner and Conservative, Conservative Party's Bob Blackman, who are both recently presented with one of India's highest civilian awards by Modi. And you're going to see a picture of Bob Blackman in a minute. Critics of Israel in the UK are now routinely accused of anti-Semitism. And with help from the Zionists, the Hindutva forces are increasingly weaponizing Hindu, Hindu phobia in the same way. Although Hindu phobia, unlike anti-Semitism, is an entirely spurious notion with no material or historical basis. In 2018, officials of the Hindu Council, a Hindutva organization, arranged a private meeting at which they told Gideon Falter, who is the CEO of the Zionist campaign against anti-Semitism, that they wanted to learn how he got the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, definition passed in the Labour Party. This definition has effectively silenced all criticism of Israel within the Labour Party. And the Hindutva forces wanted something similar so that criticism of the Modi regime would be dubbed Hindophobic. And this is now happening. When Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, because of his support for Palestine, the Zionists launched a massive campaign asking people to boycott Labour in the UK's 2019 general election. The Hindutva forces followed suit with a campaign on WhatsApp asking UK's Hindus to vote conservative because the Labour Party was anti-Indian because it criticized Modi's policies in Kashmir. Two weeks before the general election, a spokesperson for the Hindu Council made a public statement supporting Rabbi Mirwai's claim that the Labour Party is anti-Semitic and adding that it's anti-Hindu too. Increasingly now, any criticism of the Modi regime from progressives in Britain is dubbed Hindu-phobic, as well as colonial, never mind that the RSS own relationship with, with the colonizers. The current leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, whose election campaign was massively funded by Israel, has declared his unqualified support for Zionism. His shadow cabinet and shadow ministers include many friends, some 25 friends of Israel. And in the recent council election, Israeli Labour Party officials went with him, door knocking for votes. He's also expressed his support for Hindu. Replicating the Zionists, the Hindu forces have already taken, got the Conservative Party in their bag, with RSS supporting Priti Patel, who was also a great friend of Israel, and Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, in top posts and numerous others from MPs to local activists who all occupy influential positions. And they're hard at work in the Labour Party as well. In addition, they have penetrated school curricula and government funded so-called multi-faith groups and are now targeting universities. 
Birmingham City University is already a hub for, of Hindu creativity. So are certain colleges in Oxford University. Most recently, as David Miller noted in an interview with Asa Wynne Stanley, Israel's new strategy in the UK has been setting up front organizations, like one called Solutions Not Sides, which claim to be neutral and against Islamophobia. Echoing Zionist strategies, the Hindutva Brigade have established organizations to discuss what's happening in India and what they project as bringing communities together and inject nuance into discussion. But you, you tell me yourself, can there be any nuance in discussing an impending genocide? These are the issues and the organizations we constantly challenge and expose in our work in South Asian Solidarity. I will leave you now with a picture of one of our demonstrations against Hindutva fascism in London. This was against the, um, the fascistic um, citizenship laws. And thank you very much for listening. Um, thank you, Amrit, for a very wonderful, comprehensive, expansive talk going from the history, uh, also talking about the diaspora. Uh, I think we really started off this series uh, setting the setting the bar very high, I think, for the other speakers who are to come, but also laying the, the ground for uh, what, what we're going to be talking about in more detail in specific areas around Kashmir, around military occupation, around the cultural issues. I think you covered them all, but you gave the really important base in terms of understanding the history and the ways in which uh, Hindutva and Zionism come together and, and, the, and the kind of connections and the overlaps. There are quite a few questions. So I don't know if you just want to take a little quick glass of water. Um, yeah, and sure. I'll, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and um, sort of so I'll, I'm, I'm not going to go through them in any kind of order here. Sorry, folks. Uh, and I think there's still more that are coming. But so while uh, while people are still getting their questions together, let me let me start with one uh, which I thought was uh, kind of actually one that I myself uh, have been thinking quite a lot about. Um, I think it's a name, uh, you know, friend of ours, comrade of ours, who's asking about the actual possibility of genocide in terms of being 200 million Muslims compared to, say, I mean, six to nine million Palestinians. Uh, what, what, what do you think are the possibilities of an actual genocide uh, in terms of, of that kind of population? And, and, and as I said, I've been thinking about this myself mm -hmm. more in terms of actually there are many different techniques by which you can do genocide. It's not necessarily just uh, straightforward, you know, uh, getting rid of populations. But I, yeah, I, I, it, that's one of the questions here. Yes, I mean, this is obviously a very important point, but I think what we've got to remember here is what I mentioned earlier, that genocide is a process. And what we see in India is in different parts of the country, there have been attacks on Muslims, there have been, uh, there have been deportations, you know, they've been expelled, for example, the citizenship law has actually locked people up into massive detention centers, which have been built mainly in Assam, but also in other states. And so, you know, these people will be deported or they'll be made stateless, right? They'll have nowhere to go. 
Um, so that's one thing. But on the other hand, there's the constant killings, you know. Um, this morning I was reading a, a news item about uh, fishermen in Gujarat, the fisher people who are extremely poor. And they, their livelihood has been blocked and they're saying, kill us, we want euthanasia, you know. I mean, what sort of despair is that, you know? So genocide is happening in a million different ways, you know. Um, and I think what people fear is there'll be a series of pogroms across the country. And that may be happening very, very soon, you know. So it's an ongoing process of genocide. You know, it's not as though people are simply pushed out, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, and I, and I think um, that the, the other part of it can just be creating, um, just creating war gated, like just as in Gaza, you create open prison camps or you create these kinds yeah. of, I mean, the whole CAA, the whole idea of just having people in camps, basically just creating populations of stateless people, yeah. I think is something that we are, and, and in and in Assam, it's it's in the hundred thousands, isn't it? The kind of numbers that we're yeah, talking about. So. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so many people have lost their uh, their right to stay in India. Some sometimes one member of the family, sometimes the parents, but not the child. Sometimes the child is taken away, and these uh, detention centers are this. They're prisons. They're huge prisons, massive. And there's also one in Maharashtra. They're in different parts of the country. So it's, uh, you know, it is a, it's a really a massive uh, attack in a variety of ways. I mean, that's what we have to realize. Okay, so there's another question, um, and this one, I mean, is specifically asking about how Sikhs fit in the narrative, but I also think it's really a question about how other minority groups across India, because obviously the, the focus of the talk was mainly on Muslims. So I suppose it's really about how other minorities fit into the narrative. Yeah, I think, you know, certainly um, the Sikhs have suffered a lot. Um, in some ways, the Congress government, which came before the BJP, um, acclimatized the nation for pogroms, right? Because this, the, what the Sikhs faced was really a genocidal attacks in 1984. So, um, you know, there is that, that aspect of it, but this lot, you know, Interestingly enough, in, in my opinion, from what I've seen, the uh, <clears throat> Sikhs in India are part of the mainstream struggle against Hindutva in a big way. You know, they played a very important role in the farmers' protests, for example, um, and they, they were organized, you know. So I think that is sort of the central issue, although people who live abroad, Sikhs who live abroad, have tended to um, demand a separate state. I think in India it's less, you know, pronounced and it's much more important to look at them in the context of the, the broader struggles which are going on. And I really would like to emphasize that aspect of the people's movements in India, which are so vibrant, so huge. And, and they are carrying on that struggle, which is being completely um, like pushed out of the mainstream media and the West and other countries. We never hear about what's happening to indigenous people in India. What are the methods they're using of resistance? We never hear about the women, how they are they're fighting back against the vicious um, Islamophobia and misogyny which they face. 
And of course, the, the farmer struggle had its moment of glory, but after that, you know, people just aren't bothered about what's going on. And I think it's really important if we want to show solidarity to highlight that there is a struggle going on, there is resistance. Absolutely. Um, there's another question asking about um, what impact Bollywood has in relationship to Islamophobia. I mean, I know we're going to have, hopefully we're going to have a talk specifically on this, but uh, so it, I, yeah, I think it's Mona who's asking about, yeah, the effect of Bollywood on Islamophobia, like what that relationship is. Well, I mean, the thing is, you know, Bollywood has long um, been very uh, upper caste and Hindu central. Having said that, some of the biggest stars are Muslims, right? Um, and increasingly, we are finding that those Bollywood stars who have taken a stand against uh, Modi and the BJP are facing, you know, a lot of attacks, you know. Uh, for example, Shah Rukh Khan, who's a, one of the biggest stars in the world, really. Um, the way in which he has been harassed, he's been targeted, is really like, you know, mind-boggling that this could happen to him, you know. Um, having said that, you know, there are films one can see. I mean, even Shah Rukh Khan has made films which, uh, which show, you know, what it's like to be a Muslim in India, you know. Um, in the earlier phase, before the BJP came, well, already there was Islamophobia. You know? From day one, you know, there was. And uh, like I said, you know, there is, in people's consciousness, there is that level of Islamophobia which comes out of stories about partition, and things like that, you know. Um, there's, there's another question, which again, I'm going to take my kind of chair's privilege to change slightly, um, where I think Mohammed is asking how Hindutva negotiates its own legacy of pro-Nazi rhetoric in the context of their alliance with Zionism. But I also just think there's a broader question about how does Hindutva deal with its own legacy of Brahminical supremacy in the context of, or how does it deal with its own legacies of, like its own internal contradictions, where Savarna kind of formulations mean that like one third of your Hindu population is is excluded. So, so the inner contradictions, I suppose. How how do you see Hindutva dealing with that uh, in relationship to? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's saying in relationship to Zionism, but I just think more generally, there's a more general question. Well, I mean, Hindutva, I think these, in a way, these are all separate issues. I mean, there's the, the whole question of caste and the fact that it's Brahminical. And um, they have tried to appropriate um, the legacy of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who was um, a Dalit icon and was also the um, uh, you know, he wrote the in, India's um, constitution, India's secular constitution. Um, so they've tried to say that he's, you know, they, he's their man, or he was their man, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, it's not true, and most Dalits are not buying that, you know. But having said that, in some cases, they have been partially successful in attracting the Dalit vote, put it that way, you know. But, um, but generally, you know, this is, negated by that constant ongoing violence against Dalits, you know, which is huge, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine how, if you don't, haven't seen it or haven't experienced it, just what, how, how acute that 
uh, oppression is. And that goes on. I mean, you, you, uh, you know, even, well, a couple of days ago, I was looking at one of the BJP leaders and he was greeting a man who was obviously, he thought was from a lower caste. And the man came to touch his feet as a mark of respect. And he says, no, no, don't touch me. You're untouchable, right? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, this happens. They can't get rid of that mindset. It's very deep. And, and with that is linked that deep patriarchy, you know, against all women. Of course, against Muslim women, there's a particular targeting. But it's also against Hindu women who, for example, married Muslim men and even women generally. I mean, Mohan Bhagwat, the man whose picture you saw standing in front of the Akhan Bharat map, has said that, you know, women should uh, stay at home and be good wives and all of that, you know. About their uh, relationship with Nazism, I think that's really interesting because um, while it's well known that the ideologues wrote about it, I mean, these books are available, they now claim that they have nothing to do with the Nazis. And there have been attacks, you know, people have, uh, I think there have even been people arrested for saying that they're linked with the Nazis. You know, it's very easy to get arrested in India now, whatever you say, you know. In fact, one of the, um, there was a Dalit professor in Delhi University who was recently attacked because he made a sarcastic remark about the, um, the so-called shivling in, um, in the Gyanvapi mosque. He said, you know, this shivling looks as though Shiva was circumcised. And, you know, this, um, this caused so much offense that he was arrested, you know. Luckily, he's now out on bail, but, you know, that, that kind of thing does happen. You know. There's, um, the, one of the questions asks about the Indian diaspora, diaspora groups, particularly in the U.S., who are attempting to emulate the weaponization of anti-Semitism by attacking any critique of state violence of India as a critique on Hindu Americans. And I know uh, South Asia Solidarity Group has been really at the forefront of what in Britain we're seeing uh, is called Hindu phobia. And so again, the question is, can you comment on this uh, co-option of the minority narrative uh, within the West? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, you know, this started um, over the last few years. As I said, they, they tried to learn from the, the Zionists, you know, directly. And um, now, you know, there's like, it, it's become extremely common. So you have, for example, um, you know, they, they put pressure on the, um, the people who ran the census in America to see how many attacks there'd be. And in fact, the number of attacks they could identify on people who they thought were attacks as Hindus were minute, although at the same, in the same period, the number of attacks on South Asians had risen vastly, you know. And I mean, if I look at my own experience, I'm sure, you know, your own, well, you're a Sikh, so maybe it doesn't apply to you, but, you know, I know, uh, I know from my own experience, I mean, I live in Britain, I've been targeted as um, an, an Indian, uh, as someone from a colonized country, as a South Asian, uh, but although, in, you know, many, when I first came here, I was to wear a bindi and a sari, and I looked like a Hindu, I was never, ever targeted as a Hindu, you know. So, I mean, this is complete, it's a complete fake. But it was, that's a direct learning from the Zionists. And now, you know, friends of mine are, are being challenged within the Labour Party. There's complaints against them. 
um, even for asking fairly uh, minor questions like, you know, you come across a charity, naturally you think of Seva International who channel, channel money to the RSS. So you, you know, you, um, you have a right to ask, is this charity um, okay? Have you checked this out? And even for a question like that, um, there could be a complaint against you, you know. So it is very, very, um, and, and, you know, I myself have, as a journalist, um, I've had articles blocked um, about Hinduphobia and, and blocked directly by um, Labour MPs who support, um, well, who appear to support Modi. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I think the, the IHRA definition which you talked about is opening a very slippery slope in terms of any criticism of state violence suddenly becomes a criticism of uh, a particular group which can be seen as you know minority racialized in any any kind of way in any kind of context so i do think it's i mean even obviously uh, facing racism as a Sikh or from because of my turban often someone will call me a Muslim because I'm wearing a turban so it's never that it's never that clear what the, the yeah. it's not like these people are are so culturally astute to know what a Hindu is or to know what a yeah. you know I mean exactly. it's just picking on a cultural object yeah. to exert violence which is but uh, also you see I think it's also because of the war on terror of all the anti-Islamic um, anti-Muslim laws which have been passed, the attacks on Muslim countries, all of this creates an atmosphere of Islamophobia. So that's always the primary one, you know. Yeah. So, you know, a Sikh could be attacked as a Muslim, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and um, you know, that's, that's very much uh, the main thrust of it. But then also you're attacked as, you know, for the color of your skin or because you, you are from an ex-colony or you know, because you look, don't, you know, you look as though you are one of those people from the global south, you know, so. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've got a more of a political economy question here, which of course we will like. So to the extent uh, we can, so who is profiting or benefiting from the creation of the genocidal state, the building of the detention centers, the expansion of the surveillance state in terms of like in, in India? Um, well, this is something which needs to be um, researched more deeply, but already we know that um, Modi's, particularly Modi's favorite corporates, which are, as I said, the Adani group, he actually nurtured Adani from the beginning, from 2008. Um, and, you know, this, this corporate was was very central to the whole Hindutva project, you know, because it grew with, with Modi, in a sense, as Prime Minister. Um, so, you know, you have Adani, you have um, Reli the, the Reliance Group, which is owned by Amba Mukesh Ambani, um, and you have a few others, you know, who are all part of this. And all of them benefit, and the reason they benefit is that, um, you know, they, they are, not only making money out of projects, which are Hindutva projects, you know, like the um, detention centers and all the rest of it, right? But they also directly fund the BJP and get massive uh, favors, you know, so they give land for pittance, you know, 
given access to all kinds of facilities, which other um, others wouldn't get. You know, so there's a very deep vein of corruption as well, which helps them. But yes, Indian corporates are are benefiting massively. There's been quite a few questions of the kind of what can we do variety. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read one which I think it's it's kind of sort of is, is, is a nice it's a nice question actually but it's it's in that vein um and so i think this is noura al mashni who's saying the startup entrepreneurial spirit of neoliberalism what you were talking about makes Zionism and hindutva complementary is there such an ideally ideology that could unite anti-imperialists or are we better off without an ideology and and then they go on to say, is there anything that can be said about Palestine, Palestinian solidarity, solidarity in India? So I, I mean, it's just a general question about resistance, I think, um, but very nicely framed in terms of an ideology of anti of anti imperialism. I think that's a really important question, and you know, if if the Zionists and the Hindutva lot are getting together, we must do the same. No question. Um, there's a surprising uh, amount of um, positivity towards Palestine among the different people's movements in India now. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's not at the forefront because at the forefront is resistance in order to exist, you know. It's a very, very hard struggle. Um, but I think what's more important in this context is that those of us who are in the diaspora make it our, our job to create that link. And that link is extremely important because the ideology here is basically is anti-imperialism, you know. It's, it's fairly simple in that context, you know. Uh, we can go into details of who is a Marxist, who is not, and, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that, you know, we are fighting the imperialist monster in different shapes and forms, right? Um, and so we have to unite in that context. I mean, the Palestinian struggle has been going on for far longer than we've been fighting in Europe. Right? Um, so in many ways, we have a lot to learn from them as well, from Palestinian movements. But the advantage which India has in this context is we actually do have vibrant people's movements, which we should support. And we should, and I think for people outside, they want to do something. They must amplify the voices of those who are fighting in India, who are resisting, you know, of those movements. And that is really important because it's being wiped away. It's being completely obliterated from uh, the mass media, from, you know, um, people generally what they think about, you know. And I think that's, I think at this moment for us, I think that's the most important thing, that we show solidarity with those movements and make links in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I said, like quite a few people have been asking questions about whether you think uh, in, in India itself, will it just take it, will just a change of government be enough to remove uh, what's the kind of damage that the BJP has done while it's been in government? Or are these much, are these much deeper, kind of much deeper changes that we're seeing right now? I think um, one of the things that's happened is that the BJP uh, and the RSS particularly has succeeded in placing their people in every part of the state. 
And so there'll have to be a complete change for all of that, for anything to be, you know, um, for, you know, for anything to be effective. So if there's a change of government, that's a big step. There's no doubt, you know. But after that, there has to be a process where people are actually given information. And interestingly enough, um, in the last election <coughs> in the state of Bihar, um, some friends of ours from the Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninists, were going around the villages, Hindu villages, and telling them about what happened in Kashmir, what, what the CAA is, how it could affect them, how they could relate to these things. And there was, this, there was a huge interest and, uh, you know, a change of approach of, and a lot more sympathy, you know. So really, it's partly not knowing, you know, swallowing this, these lies whole and, you know, fearing and uh, thinking of revenge and all of that, the victim mentality. And that needs to, people need to somehow be informed that that's not the case. So any new government which genuinely wants to get rid of Hindutva and, you know, the Congress, I don't know, I'm not terribly hopeful about it, even if it did ever come to power. But if a government came to power which was genuinely against Hindutva, what they would have to do is actually give people information in a way which they haven't got, you know. And I think that that might help. Okay, there are a few, the questions are still coming thick and fast, so I don't know if you want to get a glass of water <laughs> before we carry on. Um, so uh, names asking uh, a really important question about the judicial system uh, for example between the kind of a, a comparison between Israel and India for example are there separate laws and courts as exist in Israel so what is the situation in terms of the legal framework and I suppose this is really a follow-up to moving towards uh, a kind of genocide where you you know you start having separate courts so you start having separate provisions well, at the moment, there are no separate courts that I know of, but there are um, laws which are basically colonial era laws, which are still in place, you know, like the anti-terrorism legislation, which, you know, you don't get bail for, basically, you know, like the sedition law, which is a throwback from colonialism. So, I mean, there are all of these laws, and there, you know, I think in, in India, as, as far as I know, there's no separate judicial system. So it is all within the framework of the different courts of different levels, you know. So at least that's something which is much, much worse in, in Palestine. Yeah, um, though I think the, if we look at the, in the ways in which um, the laws are applied, that's, as, you, as you're saying, I mean, if we think about the way that Kanyakumar, that was a student leader, was arrested, and then Umair Khalid, was arrested at the same time, and Umar Khalid is still in jail, and Kanir is out, and so the, the laws get applied quite differentially in terms of the yeah, ways in which I Muslims think, are treated. Yeah, so definitely, I think every there's total. I mean, there's there's total discrimination in that. You know? yeah. So Absolutely. even and yeah. I mean, when you think of it, people who call for genocide, you know, they could be locked up, then after a couple of days they're out, and when they come out, they're being garlanded by BJP people. Oh, you know, there was that terrible rape of a, a young girl in, in Kashmir um, from, the, uh, from a nomadic community. And um, she, you know, that case, um, 
the the BJP uh, uh, politicians were actually um, angry that this case was being brought at all, you know, and then they were celebrating the fact that this happened. So, and this we see all across India, you know, it's um, it's it's absolutely uh, endemic, you know, that people BJP people get hardly any sentence, you know, they're out on bail, you know, um, they have threatened people to shoot them. They have killed people, um, and you know nobody bothers. They're out on bail very quickly. Whereas people who have done nothing, like Omar Khalid, or you know, or so many others, you know, um, but not all of them are Muslim. I mean, I think you're right that you know certainly in the situation where Muslims and Hindus are equal in a sense, both are students. It's more likely that the Muslim person will be locked up for much, much, much longer. But there are also situations where, you know, um, it's really their political affiliation that matters, you know. Um, for example, the Bhima, in, in a place called Bhima Korekao, where a lot of activists, you know, important activists, lawyers and others have been locked up, you know. Um, they are not uh, Muslims, you know. The vast majority of them are actually Hindus. So uh, what, that's what I was saying. This is also a tremendous attack on the left, you know. Um, and as I as I was mentioning, the World Hindu Council, um, Congress, which was um, held held with the support of the corporates, um, they actually targeted the left in the, in the pamphlet, you know, uh, Marxists and all its offspring. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's ongoing that that battle in fact i mean there's a there's a question uh which i think relates to that it's called what do you think about the movement called hindus for human rights this is not one i've come across i don't know if it's something you've come across before this is uh shaheen Junaid has asked this question um this is the uh, movement in america right i think so yeah, yeah, yeah. we have a global um, audience <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I think you know they have um, they, they they are basically an NGO who does who do a lot of work. I have to say, and have been successful in doing a number of things. I mean, um, I think you know I think it's it's they have played they are playing an important role. I think what we've got to realize is when you're fighting fascism, you have to do so in a broad alliance. You know, and so not all of us may agree with some things, but we are all working together on this. You know, um, I mean, if you ask me personally, then I would be somewhat hesitant to be part of such a group because, you know, I think that Hindus have a lot to sort out for themselves first, you know. I mean, in, I know that Hindu human rights do that, but what I'm saying is that not many Dalits would want to be a part of a group which was basically calling itself a Hindu group. Um, but then again, as I say, you know, we can't uh, discount the work they've done and, you know, they are certainly uh, very um, effective in many, many ways, you know. Um, we've had, we've got quite a long comment, I, I mean, it's more of a comment from Vidya uh, Keshavan on, the, on Facebook, which is really talking about the ways in which uh, sort of the, the relationship between Nazism and Zionism 
uh, and the ways in which, in the sense that, that I suppose it's just relating, I should just read it because it's quite complicated, but it's a good point that the links between Hindutva fascists and Nazis and the relationship with Zionists, uh, it is important to point out the Zionists were the only group that broke the Jewish boycott of the Nazis, that many Nazis called themselves Zionists since they would accomplish their ideolo ideology of cleansing Europe of Jews and the many links between the Israeli far-right far and neo-fascist white supremacists united in the hatred of Muslims all over Europe and the West uh, broadly. So, I, I mean, I think it's just a comment and a point which is a very yeah, important okay. comment and point uh, um, in, in that sense. Um, and then there's another comment, I'm just thinking about time, but there's another comment about, which I think is an important point that the uh, BJP have managed to represent themselves as kind of development, like have this economic progress veneer. And so um, I think this is Rami, who's saying that maybe we need to think about a political economy critique, which takes into account things like bank LPG bank accounts, other, you know, this whole, this whole developmentist approach that the BJP have, which obviously we see as kind of shining India, because we had to live through that. But there, but there is, I, I, yeah, there is, there's a point there that, that uh, even though we've got the crony capitalism, there's also this real representation of the BJP as working for economic progress. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that's a very important point, and I think um, you know anybody who wants to show um, show solidarity with those who are fighting in Hindutva must take this on board. The fact that um, um, you know, the um, the whole question of um, um, sorry, the question that the guy brought up about. Um, so the main point was about uh, I'm sorry there are so many points there what, what is the main point i'm forgetting yeah no i i think it's just about the the point that like how do we think about crony capitalism in the context where they do all this narrative about and do these policy yes, changes yes, yes. which right. are all about yeah, development yeah. really sure sure no i think you know the point which i made earlier on which in a way i i would have liked to expand but that wasn't time was that um, Modi's notion, uh, because the BJP shaped itself around neoliberalism, development was seen as a big thing, you know. And the thing about development was that it incorporated in its interstices the violence against Dalits, the violence against uh, Muslims. So this was embedded in their notion of development. And also the notion of development was, you know, building billionaires, as I said, they sold off um, the private sector, they're still doing that. Um, and as a result, you know, there's extreme poverty. So there is no development for the people. The only people who are developing are Modi's corporate friends, you know. They're certainly very highly developed, you know. So um, I think that this is a, this is a key point, that it is really all, um, you know, this image which has to be reconstructed and known about more widely because even now yet people are saying oh yeah but he was good on development on economic policy no he was not he's in a really bad state i don't know if people know about what's happening in sri lanka now well you know where basically the country has gone bankrupt completely and even in india i say economists are saying that india is very close behind you know
Um, okay, I think we, we will, we, there are more questions coming, but I think that maybe we will now, this is probably a good time to, to wind down. Uh, and the questions that people have, uh, have given that we haven't been able to address, um, we are hoping that 